You're listening to the Mining and Energy Union podcast. Yes, you certainly are. I'm Tim Brunero. Thanks for listening. Well, coal mining can be a lifelong career, sure, but how many coal miners notch up a half century? And how many rack up that 50 years at the same mine? Hi, my name's Robert McPherson. I uh, work in Mower Anglo Coal Mine. I started in 19, uh, 1968 as a apprentice for a couple of years and I got into the miners' union. I've had to go up most things out there, I suppose, driving machinery and stuff in my day. Yeah, I'm a truck driver at the moment and I drive in uh, the reject circuit. I take the reject away from the wash plant. Yeah, there's only me in the circuit, so that's pretty good. I haven't got someone trying to run over me yet. Yes, Robert Macca McPherson has been given the MEU's 50-year service award after a lifetime living and working in Mowra, a central Queensland mining town itself steeped in history. In 50 years, Macca has seen a lot of changes and been caught up in a few blues. We'll get to those in a second. Macca arrived in Mowra in 1964 as a 15-year-old with his family when it was little more than a ramshackle village of tents, shacks and corrugated iron humpies. Dad came here in uh, 1964 as manager of Number One Underground, or one of the managers of Number One Underground. We were the first of the high schoolers here at the time. They put up demountable buildings for us to do Grade 8. We only had Grade 8 at the time, and we used to have to go to Theodore every Friday over a dirt road and a bus, which is 40 mile away, and um, do our Grade 9 and Grade 10. But by the time we finished it, they had a full high school up here. In the 1950s and 60s, coal mining for export was just starting to take off in the Bowen Basin. The mine at Mowra was the Bowen Basin's first open-cut mine. Former General Secretary Andrew Vickers explains. Coal had been mined in the Bowen Basin for, for many years, but solely for domestic use, fueling power stations, very small ones, and uh, also providing coal for uh, the rail systems. Uh, the Americans came out, decided that uh, there was very good coking coal uh, in central Queensland, in the Bowen Basin, and uh, there was a, a growing demand for it from uh, increasing use of steel in Japan. That's what kicked it off at Maurer, and uh, it grew exponentially to, uh, to what it is now, a massive export industry, primarily based on metallurgical coal for steel making. Many experienced miners were drawn to the area, like Macca's dad, who'd been a coal miner in Ipswich and further north in Blair Athol. My um, great-grandfather and my grandfather were both in mines in Ipswich, and uh, my dad as well. I'm probably fourth generation, or whatever you like to call it in that respect. While mining had started in Mowra in the 1950s, there were no houses. The mine was in the middle of the bush. Miners' families lived in tents, the lucky ones in corrugated iron sheds. There was no power no running water, and they used pit toilets. Water was brought to the families by the mine water truck, which watered the roads at the mine. It was filthy, it was muddy, and it was full of sticks and leaves. In 1963, the year before Macca and his family arrived in Maurer, a five months pregnant Judith Martin was making a home for her six daughters while her husband Mick worked at the mine. The actual um, tin shed was all in one. It was... Um it was lined, but what we we petitioned like part of it off for my husband and I, and then the girls all lived in like they had bunks or that was that's how that's how that ha- it just had to be because you didn't have any room. Well, we extended and put a kitchen on, 
which, which made it a little bit more, you know, livable. The family shared the bush camp with kangaroos and snakes and dingoes. And then one of my daughters got bitten by a, a, a redback spider. We had to rush her over to Bilawila to the hospital. But the American owners of the Maurer mine didn't care where their workers lived. When the unions more or less approached the manager of uh, uh, Peabody, he was an American, he said, we're here, he said, to mine coal, not build houses. That was his attitude, and that was his attitude when I went down to court too, it was the same attitude. I'm here, our company's here to get coal out, not worry about, you know, the way that our employees live. Judith told union leaders she wanted to appear as a witness at the arbitration court in Brisbane, where the union was arguing the company should provide housing. And when she did, she whipped out a bottle of the muddy water she and her daughters had to drink. Very lightly, I pulled out this bottle of water and I sat it on the in front of me and I said, here, Mr Gallagher, Judge Gallagher, I said, there's what the water that we're drinking out there at Mara at the moment. And he turned around and said to me, well, I'll put it this way, if I was in that position, he said, I'd make sure I had a big bottle of whiskey next to it. The judge ordered the American owners of the Mara mine to build houses for the miners and their families. So Macca, a year later in 1964, found himself in a community literally being hacked out of the bush with schools and hospitals and other services hurriedly being bunged up to keep up with the influx of miners. If the mine owners hadn't been forced to provide houses, the whole district would look very different today. Mara was, was the first of the big mines in the Bowen Basin, focused on the export industry, and the companies were making millions out of Australia's resources, and the Mara people and the unions decided enough was enough. If they hadn't have done it, um, it would be unthinkable what those uh, what those communities would be like today. They would be that they, they would be corrugated iron and, and and burlap shacks. After the union's victory at Mara, the union made it very clear that no mines would open unless proper accommodation was available for the workforce. Uh, no accommodation, no labour. As a result, uh, Blackwater mushroomed, commencing with the Tees operation at South Blackwater, later the Utah Development Company at, uh, at the Blackwater Open Cut. And then uh, Utah looked to move further north uh, in the Bowen Basin to uh, richer and better grade uh, coking coal deposits. And they decided they would open their Gunyola and Peak Downs mines in the late, very late 60s, early 70s. That led to the township of Moranbar being built actually out of the bush. There was absolutely nothing there. Roads got built, houses got built, ultimately schools got built, ultimately hospitals got built. And that then followed a, a string of, uh, of brand new mining communities uh, like Dysart, like Middlemount, like Thierry, uh, like Glendon, even further north, although Glendon is primarily uh, thermal coal. And also to increases in um, uh, existing towns, small and slightly larger, uh, like uh, Bilawila, not far from Mara, uh, Collinsville, of course, expanded, um, and, and so on. That's, that was, Mara was the start of it. Um, the end of it is the fact that there are a number of uh, thriving communities literally hacked out of the bush in central Queensland, all because of the, of the miners' victory at Mara back in 1963. 
Given Macca had arrived in town just as this victory was won and houses were being built around him, literally by the mine operator, the issue was very close to his heart. So, 17 years later, in 1980, when John Howard, who was the treasurer in Malcolm Fraser's Liberal National Government at the time, tried to tax the houses, Macca arced up. Let me explain. In 1980, most miners paid a heavily subsidised $5 a week in rent. But now the Liberal National Federal Government wanted to raise that rent to $25 and then tax the difference, 20 bucks, as a taxable benefit. It was, in effect, a pay cut and an attempt to get a slice of something miners had worked hard to win. Because you're out in a remote area like this and there was no houses here originally. People lived in tents on the river when this mine first started. So the union, in their infinite wisdom, caused a bit of a ruckus or whatever. And the companies, not out of the goodness of their heart, but they had to build houses here basically. And hence, once they built those houses, that's when John Howard and Malcolm Fraser come in with this housing tax that they wanted to put on us. And it was BS. If they didn't have the houses here, they wouldn't have got people to come here. As simple as that. I mean, who the hell wants to live in a tent down the river? Macca, together with miners all over Queensland, downed tools in protest. Each week this cost local mining companies $5 million in profits, the Queensland government $3 million in royalties, and the federal government $9 million in excise and export duties. Remember, all this was over a measly extra 20 grand a week in tax the federal government wanted to take from all miners in central Queensland, not just at Mowra. Former Lodge president at the nearby Peak Downs mine, Marty Crane, remembers the dispute well. It dragged on and on. We had that much support from teachers, police, because it was going to affect everyone. Everyone who had subsidised rent, and the police came out and told us, and, and the, the teachers and everyone, because they couldn't go on strike, and they supported us 100%. Eh? That was just unbelievable, financially uh, and morally. So, uh, yeah, so it was, it was going to affect everyone. Marty Crane says they beat Howard on the tax question, but did agree to a small increase in rent paid to the company. I asked him if it was a win. Yeah, it was, because it, it went from $5 to $8. So that's, um, in my opinion, a fair sort of win. Yeah, because we'd spent a bit of time on the grass. For the sake of us getting back to work, the $8, the extra couple of dollars was a compromise, so yeah, we did it. Macca remembers the strike well too and the subsequent victory. We had a, yeah, 13-week housing tax strike. John Howard's and Malcolm Fraser's era. Yeah, it was 13 weeks on the grass and it stuffed a lot of people up, like you know what I mean, but unfortunately that's how it was and we were on strike for 13 weeks, basically, at the end of the day and uh, the housing tax they were gonna put on us, obviously it got dropped because of, you know, it was pretty well nationwide, well it was Queensland-wide anyway that I know of with the housing tax strike. Another big change Macca has witnessed over his 50 years mining at Mowra has been shift lengths and shift structure. Things began to change about eight years after the big blue with John Howard over housing. Originally we were day, night, afternoon shift, eight hours. And then once we went on this uh, 12 and three quarter hour roster, it was, yeah, it's a bit, a little bit tedious and long. And uh, yeah, now it was a lifestyle roster, but now, They've got the seven on, seven off in. And to me, it's just two days too long. Queensland Vice President Steve Pearce traces some of this change in the industry back to 1988 and a structural efficiency decision handed down by David Duncan 
the chairman of the coal industry tribunal. What that did was forced all coal mine workers onto a um, what was the, called the dragline roster, which was still eight-hour shifts, but it was seven days in a row. And you'd do seven-day shifts, you'd have two days off. You'd do seven night shifts, have four days off. You'd do seven afternoon shifts, and then you'd have one day off, and obviously then roll back into the day shifts. That really started the destruction and the decay of the, uh, the mining communities because the, uh, the people who were training the children at sport were looking after different social activities in town. Those workers were now not available on a weekly basis to be able to provide the guidance and support to those children. Senior sport obviously disappeared because weekends people were rostered on, so sporting teams basically had to have two teams to try and field a team. A lot of partners because of the extended roster and, and people being away on the weekends, their partner having to work on the weekends, um, actually relocated to the coast or to other areas where they had family support. Their partner would live in the camp and then go home on the weekends. So it, it started a decline in the coal communities. The shift structures for the seven day roster in terms of days on shift and days off were different at different mines making it even harder for communities to function as they had. Macca says the pressure is much greater than when he started over 50 years ago. Well, there's a hell of a lot more pressure these days than what it used to be in the old days. It's a, basically a big push for coal. It's pressure, especially on new people coming into the industry if they're not hardened enough like most of the guys that have been there, say, for five or ten years or more. Yeah, someone new coming in there, I think they find it a little bit daunting, you know, I mean, the pressure, the, the go, go, go and the rapidity of everything. Unfortunately, it doesn't look like 12-hour shifts and seven-day rosters are going anywhere anytime soon. But Maurer Lodge president, Heath Timmons, says he's glad to have life members and others like Macca around to remember the history. What I've learned from our, uh, from our, older, our older guys, our, our life members, each person I've learned different things from, whether it was how to conduct a meeting, or how to, um, how to speak, how to, how to escalate, how to de-escalate. And Macca knows Heath appreciates him having a yarn with younger miners to help them understand the history of the district. Heath will tell you, I normally talk to most new people that come out there. I said, for a start, I said, your union dues are tax deductible. You can actually claim them in your tax, right? So big deal about the money. I said, secondly, you've got your legal people from the union they don't do weddings and funerals. They do mining accidents and incidents. They speci that's, specifically, that's what they do. If you're not in a union, you've got to go and find yourself a barrister or something like that and pay yourself a couple of thousand dollars an hour to have one. So you're better off with your own people looking after you. Heath Timmons says he understands Maurer's special place in the Queensland coal mining industry. As I got more involved with the union, um, not only at, at, at Maurer Lodge level, but also at a state level, I started to understand the history of Mara in the mine site and also from the union point of view. And it, I found it very important that that legacy needed to continue. I found that there was, there have been a lot of uh, good, uh, great calibre and quality delegates and officials that have come before me with a couple taking on, uh, getting the, uh, rewarded with life membership of the union. But I also understood that the, with the history that's happened here with the, with the mine, that it was critical that the Mara Lodge remain strong 
um, and made sure that it, it, it looked after its members and in, in doing so kept its legacy. And sometimes that corporate memory of the mine can be very important, as Macca points out, especially when the mine changes hands. Mate, if I kept a shirt for everyone that's owned this mine, I'd have a bloody wardrobe full of shirts with, you know, different brands on them, like, you know, yeah. Basically, the union's got to educate them. In reality, they have to educate them to a degree because they'll just go off on their own tangent, their own track, and they'll come out with all the BS in the world. And that's where, in the early days, we had strike after strike, like, you know what I mean? It was just unbelievable. Yeah, until you get them sorted out. Heath says to know what to do in the future, Lodge officials need to remember what's happened in the past. Unless you know your history, you can never, you, cannot, you can't move forward. I've always sort of said, to understand where we need to be, we need to understand where we've been. That's Mara Lodge President Heath Timmons ending this episode. And a big congratulations to Robert Macca McPherson from all of us here at the podcast on your 50-year service award. Half a tonne, that's not too shabby at all. Well, that's all we've got for you on this episode. Talk to you next time.